Welcome back to Public Health Explained series. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So previously on Public Health Explained, we went over positive predicted value, negative predicted value, sensitivity, and specificity, which is all about basically how to characterize screening or diagnostic test, uh, among other things. But before that... And we've also talked about different study designs that we see in public health. So we've talked about cohort studies where you follow people either forward or backward in time and see the different things they're exposed to and different diseases they might develop. And we also talked about case control studies where you have a group of people who have a disease and then you look to see if they have different kinds of exposures or or sort of assessing cases and comparing those with folks who don't have that disease. Yeah. And we say disease, but it could be any outcome that we're Injury, anything. We can't talk about study design without talking about the quote-unquote gold standard of study design, the randomized controlled trial. Uh, We're going to come back to this gold standard descriptor very shortly, but let's go over what an RCT is first, and we can do this pretty much one letter at a time. (laughs) So the R in RCT is for randomized, and this is important because one of the biggest challenges in figuring out if your intervention, your medication, your treatment, whatever it is, is effective is that folks who may volunteer or opt into or select to participate in something or not might be fundamentally different from those who don't. And so being able to randomize reduces the likelihood that there are differences between your groups. So you can do a, a variety of different randomization processes. The the how is, is less important than the result being when you can randomize and then you're able to control the different application of a treatment, then you can strengthen your argument that your treatment is the thing that caused the difference in the groups. Mm-hmm. C. C is for controlled, and this is where you have more than one group. So if you had just one group that you were giving your treatment to, and even if you saw an effect, that doesn't mean that it was because of your medication because you didn't have anything to compare it to. So you always have at least one control group um, that you're comparing it to. So you have at a minimum a before and after measure. You have your treatment group and your control group, and that can help you, again, strengthen your argument that if you do see a change in your treatment group and you don't see a change in your control group, then that's evidence that your treatment was effective. Yeah, pretty much to combat the placebo effect, because some people, if you tell them that you're doing something, that's enough to trigger a response in a lot of cases. So I have the easy letter T, which is for trial, which is basically a trial. All right, good job, me. (laughs) (laughs) It's an experiment. Yeah, You are doing something, right? You are trying something. You are testing a hypothesis. Often when we're doing randomized control trials, we're thinking about can something work? Does something work? Sort of, do we have evidence that it can be effective or efficacious in a particular population, in a particular setting, delivered in a particular way? Yeah. And this randomization part, like you said, is the most important part because it helps us combat the selection bias that may be in place for other studies. However, what makes an RCT good is also what makes it really hard to do. To randomize a group of people to receive treatment may not always be possible for many reasons. One reason that is just you know, straight up impossible and practical, right? You can't randomize people, say, okay, I, here's a group of people, I'm going to randomize you to have cancer and randomize you not to have cancer. And then we're going to see whether your cytokines level change in your body, 
right? You can't just will cancer into someone. And also, why would you? <laughs> um, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. And you also can't randomize people into like, okay, here's a group of people. I'm going to force you to live in this city for 10 years. And I'm going to force this group of people to live in another city for 10 years to see how that impacts. You know, that's also quite uh, coerce, coerce, ugh, coercive. coercive to force people to live in places. So you alluded to this, but just to put a really fine point on it, it can be unethical to randomize people. And also, I work a lot with policymakers. Policymakers don't want to be randomized to a thing (laughs) or not. If there's reason to believe that something works, they want their constituents to receive it. And sometimes, sometimes we know that there's evidence that there is benefit. Maybe it's early evidence and it might not be ethical to randomize people because you don't want to withhold a potentially positive, you know, treatment, whatever it might be for a group of folks. And so there there are a lot of reasons why it might not be ethical. Like I study injury prevention, thinking a, a correlate to your cancer example, we don't get to randomize certain people to be in car crashes and others not, or some people to be injured by a gun and, and others not. And so we often in public health are stuck thinking about observations, case control, cohort, quasi-experimental designs, but we often don't get to randomize folks. And randomized controlled trials are also very expensive. Like we glossed over a lot of details, but we have this thing called IRBs, which for some is a pain in their butt, but it's there on purpose. It's there because uh, a lot of ethical and you know legal and moral things needs to be in place. Yes, because if we're left to our own devices, humans can sometimes do terrible things to each other. Yes, we have done very awful experiments in the past. And not that far ago either. Not, not that far in the past. Not that far ago. And we're glossing over things like, okay, first you need to write up what you want to do. And then you need to run to the IRB and say, hey, can we do this? And they to come back with, okay, here's what you can and can't do. And then, okay, now we got to recruit people. And then when we recruit people, we can't give them the price can't be too high. There's so many things. Right. You can't unduly influence people to participate by offering them so much money that they would choose to do something to receive that benefit that they would never otherwise do. Right. You don't want to create a moral conflict in folks. And I'm working with the IRB right now on one of my projects. And sometimes it can be frustrating as a researcher, like I just want to do my research now. But it's so important to think about sort of what kinds of things I'm not thinking of as a researcher that other people external are like, oh, but what about this? And often they're really good considerations that we as researchers, you know, we sometimes get tunnel vision or we can't always see the forest through the trees and we just get really excited about what we want to do. So the IRB is a really good check to say, okay, I like your idea. Sometimes they're like, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) Let's assume (laughs) they think it's a good idea. Here are some other things you need to think about, address. They're really good at providing guidance on how to clearly understand what you're asking subjects to do. And I realized that this is not about IRBs, so I'm going to stop now. But no, it's I important. just want to put in a plug that like IRBs are a really important layer when you're doing research with vulnerable populations. Oh my God, yeah. That becomes even more important that you are working closely with the IRB because you don't want to, if you're working with individuals who are incarcerated or otherwise under supervision, if you're thinking about children or anything like that, folks who may have less autonomy or less capacity to really give informed consent and volunteer for something, it's so important to have extra protections. Yeah. The main point is that we're glossing over all the stuff that makes an RCT incredibly difficult to do uh, and also complicated to do. Given its constraint, it's more often we see 
testing intervention via RCT that have very short and measurable effects. So things like a drug or medical intervention, things that you can COVID-19 vaccine. Exactly. Things that you can point to it and be like, well, yes, we see an effect in a short term because also we didn't talk about this. Too. Like follow up is expensive, right? If you want to follow for a year, that means you need to have researcher that you have on staff for at least a year and maybe data analysts after that year. To do. It's very expensive the longer it is. So typically people want to keep things you know nice and neat, nice and short. To that point, just really quickly, a lot of the randomized trials that are being done for, I would say this is more common than not, although there are certainly exceptions to this. Many of them are six to 12 weeks, sometimes even shorter than that. very expensive. (laughs) You enroll someone, they get randomized, they get the treatment or not, and then you do some follow-up. But we're not talking about really long-term things for all those reasons that that MJ, you were just talking about. Yeah. And also, you don't want the intervention to be too burdensome that they leave the study. So (laughs) Loss to follow-up is a huge concern when you're doing any kind of prospective data collection. And then you have to think about, is your treatment the reason that... People dropped out. Like, are you asking too much of them, or do people have bad side effects and they don't want to continue in? So, yeah, there are a lot of challenges that make it very expensive. So often you have to enroll a whole lot of people. That way, even if people then drop out, you still have enough sample size that you can say something about it. Yeah, exactly. Again, very complicated. Typically, we see that for drugs and medical interventions. But in public health, we often work with big stuff, long-term stuff, vague stuff, non-tangible stuff. Is RCT even possible in a public health setting? Absolutely. And this is something I want to pick your brain about. Go ahead. Give us an example. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I guess it depends on how you think about public health. Everything is public health. So I would think of vaccines as a public health intervention, right? This is about the primary prevention of a disease. and, And in many cases, the primary prevention of a disease that might then prevent longer term issues. So thinking about the HPV vaccine, which if you get HPV, then you are more likely to develop cervical cancer or other issues. So if you can prevent the spread of HPV, you might substantially reduce cervical cancer down the line. And so when I think about public health. Those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about that are really relevant for randomized control trials. There, I'm sure there are other things as well, but that's sort of where I immediately go. When we start thinking about other kinds of interventions, it can be harder, but it's not impossible. We know that there have been folks that have done randomized control trials on different school interventions, I participated in a small randomized control trial looking at how we can train physicians to be better equipped to deliver high-quality patient-centered counseling on uh, firearm safety and safe storage. Um, So we recruited physicians, residents, trainees. We randomized them into two groups. Some folks just got a lecture. Some folks got a lecture and training in this particular algorithm. And then we ran them through the simulation center with standardized patients, and we looked at differences between baseline and then follow-up performance. And we saw improvement in counseling, quality, comfort, etc. So there are ways that we can do things, but this is usually in that context on a smaller scale. But it's not accurate to say we never do them. We just tend to, for many of our public health-related outcomes, have to rely on observation. Yeah, for all the practical reasons that we have listed above. Now, there is something, maybe if you can't randomize it, there is such things, and these are like like catnip to like public health researchers, which is the natural experiment. Basically, you didn't randomize people, but the universe did. And that is something that researchers like seek out all the time. We could give like a 
conceptual example what a natural experiment is. Well, so I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but the benefit of a natural experiment is that people are not opting into something. So folks might think of a natural disaster as presenting opportunities for a natural experiment. You have that city prior to the natural disaster and you have it afterwards and you can see sort of what happened, right? Because most folks are not going to say, I would like to have a a hurricane come down or a volcano explode or whatever it is. But you can also think about other things like some folks have studied the expansion of casinos on reservations and looking to see how that impacts economic outcomes, employment, some other factors sort of in the larger population, not just for folks who who were advocating for that expansion. So there, there are different ways that you can use decisions that folks are not opting into that's sort of happening to them. We refer to it as being exogenous, something outside of their control as natural experiments that can give us a good, a very, that's the closest thing that we can do in terms of an experiment. There are also a few cases, they're not common, of policy level natural experiments where for some reason, whatever, this group of people got the policy intervention, but another group of people maybe right next to it didn't get a policy intervention. Very rare because people generally don't like to be like, wait, my neighbors got something and I didn't, right? People generally don't like that. But there have been cases where for whatever legal or political reason, a generally pretty somewhat randomized group of people, uh, half of it got something, half of it didn't. Very rare, but they do exist. And when they do, researchers go wild and tons of papers are published every time that happens. I was just going to say, so the space that I tend to work in is quasi-experimental. So again, a lot of the work that we do, we can't do randomized control trials. We don't get to do the true experiments. There are very few cases of natural experiments in the firearm policy context. So we have to do our best effort to approximate an experiment. So that's the quasi-experiment. So we do things like looking before and after a policy change. We do that with a randomized control trial. We have an intervention group and a comparison group. So instead of a control group, because we're not randomizing, we call it a comparison group, we tend to try to look at change over time, not just point A to point B, because then we can establish baselines before We can look at baselines afterward. We control for different state-level characteristics that might have influenced both the outcome and whether a state passed a policy or not. And so these are the kinds of things that we're doing as researchers. We use a lot of fancy statistical analyses and methods to try to get a sense of how can we control for things? How can we best approximate the counterfactual? So this term, I want to explain it really quick. So when you're doing a randomized control trial, you have a whole bunch of people, you randomly assign some folks to get the treatment and some folks to get the control. Now, we only ever get to see one outcome in a person. They either got the treatment or they got the control. Now, if we had a time machine, somebody could assign me a treatment and see what happens. And then we could go back in time and then I don't get the treatment. And then we can say, oh, look, when Cass got the treatment, we did this thing. Well, unfortunately, no time machines exist. But that the sort of alternative outcome, that's our counterfactual. And the only way we can get that is by trying to see what happened in a group who didn't get the treatment. So in the case of a randomized control trial, because we said randomly you get it or you don't, the group who doesn't get it is our best estimate of what would have happened had the group who received the treatment didn't get it, right? And so when we're doing quasi-experimental designs, policy designs, 
We're trying to do our best to estimate or generate a reasonable counterfactual, what might have happened in these states had the policy not changed. Um, and that's where some of these statistical pieces and, and different data sets come into that. So hopefully that was not super confusing. But like the whole point of randomizing is you have the best possible estimate of what would have happened had your treatment group not received the intervention. So you, that allows you to assess the effectiveness of what your intervention was. Yeah, essentially is to combat, like I said, the placebo or is to figure out, you know, what the baseline is. That's what the randomizing and controlled part is doing. So even though it's harder to do in public health, there are examples of RCD in public health, maybe just a little bit different, or maybe you have to tweak it a little bit. Uh, Maybe it's a natural experiment, whatever. Earlier, I said we will revisit the phrase gold standard because I think it is a bit misleading, right? Yes, RCT is probably the more effective, if not the most effective type of study design that we have at our disposal. But to call it a gold standard, I feel like it's giving it a little bit too much credit. There are many things that can go wrong in an RCT that makes it not as effective as it can be. And I think the media, uh, I'm bashing on the media, but you know they've done a lot of terrible things these past few years. So why, why not? So I think the media, they often see RCT and then be like, oh, okay, this is valid, which is not always the case. For example, what if the sample that you're going to randomize, right? You have a group of people and then you randomize into groups. What if that sample is already biased? How did you recruit those people into your study? Look, if you want to do, give me an example if you want to. So I'll give you a perfect example. This is an example I use in my class. So I teach a research methods class. And one of the examples that we talk about when we're thinking about the strengths and weaknesses of randomized control trials versus observational and quasi-experimental research is looking at the impact of antidepressant medications on adolescent suicide. Mm -hmm. There were a number of randomized control trials looking at suicide ideation, suicide risk in youth, so adolescents, emerging adults, and older adults. And these, some of these randomized trials found a, a 25 or 50% increase in the risk of adolescent suicide if you were taking certain medications. That sounds alarming. So first of all, any suicide is unacceptable. I, I just want to start off with that. But when you look at the magnitude, the risk was like 1.2% in the control group, and it was 2.4% in the treatment group. So while yes, it was a, you know, or whatever, you have 100%, 50% increase, whatever it is, it's hard to math in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, just imagine I said numbers that were the equivalent of a 50% increase. Sure, sure, you got it, you got it. <laughs> but the, the true magnitude, the burden is still very, very small. The FDA released these black box warnings. People stopped using these medications and it was, you know, older versus newer medications is a whole thing. But when you look at the data that was behind the randomized control trials, very short term studies, none of them actually measured suicidal ideation or attempts it just there was these sort of retrospective studies so the measures the measures for suicidality were very flawed and they excluded participants who were already at risk of suicide from enrolling in the study in these randomized control trials so if you're thinking about making inferences about individuals who might be at risk of harming themselves but you exclude those individuals from the sample that you're randomizing in your randomized control trial, then you can't say things. You really have limited generalizability. In a randomized control trial, you can only say something about the very specific group of people you have enrolled in your study population. Yeah, which is why you want to enroll a representative study population before you randomize. If you enroll, like what you said, if you excluded a whole bunch of people before you randomize, is that group 
actually representative of who you want to generalize to. This is something called external validity. I just realized we could do probably a lot of discussion on every one of these terms, but <laughs> we can do some some teasers and then maybe yeah, we sure. should do some public health explained <laughs> episodes on more of these things. Yeah. And you brought this up. There's a huge difference between statistical significance and practical significance. Hey, guess what? 0.1% to 0.2% is a 100% increase because you doubled, but practically does that matter? And there's this huge scandal back in, I say back in like just th- th- this decade about nutrition where people are like, oh, if you do this intervention, kids will eat twice the more vegetables than they do. But then it turns out kids don't eat a lot of vegetables to begin with. <laughs> Such a teeny tiny amount. Yeah. And you sort of alluded to this, I think maybe in a prior episode when we were talking about this, but like if you test for enough things, eventually you'll find something. You're yeah. bound to find something that is significant. So if you have a population, you've gathered a whole bunch of data and you just you have no theoretical basis for testing the association between things, but then you test them and you find that something's significant, it's probably an unrelated, not causal, spurious relationship. And it doesn't practically mean anything, but sure, it's statistically significant. And I think there's been a real shift, at least in the public health journals, to say, okay, sure, but like, so what? I think that's it's like really pushing authors and researchers to, to be able to articulate the so what? Otherwise, why are we focusing on this paper? Yeah. And this is related to p-hacking, which is, again, a whole thing that we can discuss. Yeah, that but, was, I was yeah. generally referring to that <laughs> without uh, going into detail. Yeah. Which is why, like, when you're doing a study, like IRB will tell you, you need to predefine your outcome. You can't just like do something and then search for an outcome and then publish something. You need to predefine, we're going to look for this because otherwise you could run a hundred times, a hundred different ways, right? Yeah. And you should be articulating your hypotheses in advance. What do you think will yes, happen? You can't just be like, we're going to do this and we're going to see what happens. What is the theoretical reasoning why you're doing a thing and what leads you to believe that X will happen or Y will happen? And if you can articulate that, great. And actually, many funders now are telling people you have to pre-register your studies. Yes, I think everyone online should. So that everybody can see what you're doing. And then when your papers start coming out, folks can go back and say, well, wait a minute. You didn't define this. <laughs> so like you need to explain why you did this different thing as opposed to what you said you were going to do. Um, I had to do that with one of my CDC funded projects. We had to put our research plan online and tell folks what we're we're going to do. And then people can go back and say, oh, okay, you did the things you said you were going to do or, oh, you, why'd you do this differently? You need to justify it, right? It's not that you can't, it's that you need to justify it. And I think everyone should pre-register their studies because there have been tons of scandals in the last 20 years in the medical space as well. So. Well, and not just that, but we have limited resources, particularly in the field that I work in. I'm going to say a thing. This does not mean that we should not replicate other people's work, right? We absolutely should. We should test to make sure, do we see the same things if we do the same study? But Mm -hmm. what we don't want to have is two people doing the same first study. Yes, (laughs) then you're just wasting time. To do the same thing, right? It's one thing to do a study and then have somebody else replicate it or replicate it in a slightly different population or different outcome. But we don't want two people trying to do the exact same thing at the same time. That's not a good use of scarce resources. And also, then it becomes a competition of who can publish first and it just gets really nasty yeah uh, last thing i'll say before we wrap up another thing that plagued the uh, pharmaceutical industry maybe even still ongoing what is your control is your control nothing or is your control the best current available treatment this was a huge issue like people keep publishing things like our drug is so much better than control you gave them nothing for control yeah. <laughs> 
Of course it's better. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? So sometimes people will say like, what is the next best treatment or or preferably what's the, current treatment? what's the standard of care? Right. Depending on the severity of the issue, depending on what you're testing, it might be appropriate to have a control group that receives nothing. Because if we have nothing right now, then that might be the standard. Yes. But sometimes there are pieces. So we've talked about one comparison and or one intervention and one control group, but sometimes you'll have a multi-arm study. So you might have your intervention group, you might compare it to the standard of care, maybe you compare it to placebo, right? And so you might have multiple arms. Yeah, this was a huge scandal because this was done, I believe, on statin or cholesterol medication. And the one group that it's like, I gave them this new drug or I gave them nothing. I was like, well, yeah, what are you talking about? Of course, it does better because you gave the other group nothing. Of course, the new drug is super expensive and patented and will make the pharmaceutical company a whole lot of money. So they, of course, want everybody to do that. It's not in their financial interest to compare their new drug to the current drug, because if it doesn't work better than the current drug and the current drug is generic, then they're going to keep using the generic. Yeah. Big advocate for generic drugs in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases. Anyway, you know, hopefully this was a good intro into what an RCT is, especially in the public health setting. And we hope the takeaway from this is that even though RCT is probably the best, there are still many ways for an RCT to go wrong. And uh, that's something that you need to take into consideration, especially when somebody says, oh, this RCT proves X, Y, and Z. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health, our Public Health Explained series. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review whenever you listen to our podcast. It does help the show immensely. Send us questions or comments or new topics you want us to explain to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. This episode is brought to you by Public Libraries. They are an important public institution and one of the few places in this capitalistic world where you aren't expected to spend any money when you enter we should try to preserve them they are important also book banning is not a good idea follow us on twitter at everything is ph at least for now yes <laughs> or instagram at everything is public health you can also find me on twitter at least for now at dr crafasi more information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below listeners please visit our website which is our patreon page for all major updates and bonus material now that twitter is almost disappearing we're going to be posting more on there we're 100 patron supported in that we do this not for the big paychecks or the sponsors but for the love of public health and listeners like you if you want to support the podcast directly you can support us on our patreon page and remember everything is public health everything is public health <laughs>